0: Welcome to another edition of the Cross Country Super Podcast. And joining me, as usual, is Gemma Sanderson from Cooper Partners all the way in Perth. And I'm Darren tyson Chan, of course. Hi, Gemma. How are you?
1: I am good, thanks, Darren. How are you?
0: That's good. Uh, I'm pretty well, thanks, and lovely to see you, as usual. And today we will be discussing another hot topic, and that is the non-arm's length income, non-arm's length expenditure rules.
1: Very Boy, exciting.
0: How Very contentious exciting. have these been? And you must have been hiding under a rock, as I usually say, if if you're totally oblivious to this subject, because God has been dominating discussion since 2018. Um, yep. And you may well ask, how hasn't it been resolved in that period of time? But believe it or not, it has been going for that long. And, and of course, that in itself is indicative of how contentious the whole concept has been. But uh, probably, look, Jim, let's start with um, one of the more contentious issues of the non-arms length expenditure, or NALI with an E, uh, aspects. And that was the general expenses Um, provisions, which really did get people running scared because there was a potential for the whole funds um, income to be taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. You know, what are your opinions of that?
1: Well, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, when all, all these rules came out in terms of the changes in, uh, you know, effective 1 July 18, and then when the tax office re- released their practical compliance guideline on the general expenses, I think that was quite... Uh, surprising for the industry at the time and like you said it still hasn't been resolved and that is a phenomenal consideration given that you know nearly six years ago that came out anyway we we proceed forward so with the general expenses uh, and I'll start off by saying for, for me that was Yes, there was the concern that all of the income of the fund um, could be tainted by not charging a market rate for those sorts of general expenses. And my view on those sorts of things at the time was, well, most of the issues with that in a self-managed fund were things like accounting fees, audit, actuarial uh, and investment management fees. They're not enormous items uh, it's not, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or anything like that. The easiest way to manage it is to either, is to, is to charge a, a, an appropriate fee for it. And, you know, the, the tax office did come out and talk about having policies in firms and, and things like that. And that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, managing all of that then with the you know the issue's coming about originally consultation was that five times the non-arms length expense that should have been charged or the difference between what was charged and what should have been charged you know that would be taxed at the highest rate and that was in the consultation and then we had some draft legislation come out where that got moved down to two times so it's interesting that it was the whole income of the fund could be caught to down to two times what the the difference is uh, is what is is taxed at the highest rate so we've gone full circle back to almost you know, it's, it's a bit like a bit of a nothing almost now the the challenge still remains in well what is arms length and so what is even that gap so uh, if you have a look at the lcr Back in the day, the tax office said, you know, compliance resources will be put, um, if people can demonstrate that they've taken a reasonable approach, then again, that's all fine. And really, it's going to come down to the auditors picking it up and saying, show us the reasonable approach uh, from that perspective. So, I feel like we've gone almost full circle back to it, it's just a a bit of a nothing. Um, I know it's not a nothing, but, you know, in the scheme of of other fish to fry in the SMSF space, that general expense, non-arms gnarly, is is just... Less of a concern um, from that perspective. Now, I know that the draft legislation went to the Senate committee uh, in more recent times. All the professional bodies advocated for it being entirely removed um, and because it doesn't apply to APRA funds. So it should then also not apply to SMSFs uh, because of just, you know, the nature of of the expenses, the way that that has been um, put in place you know, background in the not the nominal or nil interest LRBAs from related parties, that sort of was the, the catalyst for this sort of coming through. But there's other mechanisms in place that capture that. So we don't really need it. Uh, that, you know, that those sorts of messages came across from the industry and the joint, um, all the joint accounting bodies did uh, joint submission to Treasury on that. Uh, but it seems that the those changes have been accepted by the the Senate committee, so all of that advocating and appearance at the uh, the the meeting was for, to no avail. So we're sort of trapped from that perspective. So the consideration remains uh, the the LCR that the tax office had out two thousand and twenty one slash one, I believe it was, or twenty one slash two, that. Uh, and I use this term, kicked the can down the road. So allowed, uh, you didn't have to address it until uh, it was to 1 July 2022. So now whether we need to continue to kick that can down the road until this legislation finally passes, we've got that certainty um, purely from the tax officer's um, perspective. So the legislation says that um, it won't apply to expenses prior to 1 July 18, that from that general perspective, uh, and it has that retrospective impact so that it is, um, you know, that two times uh, so that people between 1 July 18 and now um, aren't caught by how the previous provisions were drafted with this amendment coming through. So anyway, that's sort of I feel like where we're at with general expenses, a bit full circle back to the two times but waiting for the legislation to pass and then see how the tax officer's approach might be to that. um, depending on which quarter that actually passes through.
0: In saying all of that, Gemma, you raised numerous good points (laughs) um, or further discussion points about this whole subject. You did mention, you know, auditors picking this up. um, And I know a lot of them are are a little bit concerned about um, more and more onus being on them to, to be able to look at stuff. Um, within a fund to see whether or not it's comply. It, do you think that's a that's a legitimate um, concern of theirs? I know in the example that uh, the ATR has, has put out. You know, a lot of people refer to the, is it is it example number seven or is it number nine? The Trang the the plumber.
1: Oh, the plumber. Yeah. yeah.
0: So that that is being referred to a lot in the discussions um, over um gnarly with an e and um a lot of comments i hear about that is well how would an order even know what what a trustee does Like they're they're not there necessarily to to monitor every single day of did you do something to the property (laughs) property that's held within your self-managed suit like how would they even know that but um in a lot of ways as you just mentioned they're a little bit on the hook for it because it's like oh well you know they should be able to review it and they should potentially be able to pick these things up and everything will work fine after that but is that realistic i don't know
1: well it's really uh i feel like poor auditors get um thrown under the bus a bit and they're the ones holding the baby at the end you know you only have to see some of those cases that have come through and even the 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 melissa caddick stuff and i know that that's not the topic of, of this particular discussion um however it's it's one of those things you know the auditor is they're a bit of a gatekeeper to you know making sure everything's okay before it goes to the tax office but Really, the tax agent should be the one that is picking this up when they prepare the financials and the, the SMSF annual return. Now, I know a lot of trustees out there do it themselves um, where they might be accountants and they've got the the capability uh, or the know-how to do that. But um, mostly SMSFs will have a tax agent involved that is preparing the financial statements and the um, annual return. So the expectation, you know, this is a self-assessment Thing the expectation, and then the auditor is checking off on that, um, and making sure it goes through. So it's it's one of those things where uh, it, it's an awareness um, education piece uh, on all of this as well. So you don't want a small thing like that tainting the income. At least now, at worst, if you know Tran goes and fixes the tap and charges nothing and it would really be $500 that, um, although that's a bit of an anomaly, that particular example is asset specific. So it sort of isn't under the general, but if if Gemma does the financials uh, or Gemma's firm does the financials and annual return for her fund and doesn't charge and the usual charge would be $4,000, then it's really $8,000 taxed at 45%. If, if Gemma's firm doesn't charge, you know, that's, that's really, it's not cheap stations in the context. It's not the whole income of the fund or anything like that. So, uh, it's, I don't know, it's just, I feel, I've, I don't want to be flipping about it, but I've almost moved on from that. And I have more concerns about the asset specific, um, expenses, um, to come from that. And also, there's uh, there was a tax determination that came out. Um- in August last year about the treatment of non-arms length capital gains and how the calculation of that happens um, from the ATO. And like that, I've got more of a concern about how the, that might operate and the asset-specific expenses and the general expenses. Again, I don't want to sound flippant and that I don't care about general expenses anymore. <laughs> but uh, where where we've landed on it, um, it's, it's not the apocalypse like it was. With all expenses potentially being caught if you don't charge an arms length fee on accounting fees or legal fees, because the, the trustees and the, and because it's on non arms length arrangements, uh, it is the uh, so we've 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 a position has been landed on. Is it is it perfect? No, it's not, but it's the asset specific stuff that I have much more of a concern about.
0: Yeah, um, in discussions with uh, Peter Burgess about this from the SMSF Association when this sort of proposal came out, he had a very interesting take, I thought, on it, whereby um, uh, he was almost arguing that uh, materiality would come into it. So if you're talking about obviously depending on the amount that's involved, and I'm not a technical specialist, but he was talking about it being picked up in part A of the audit as opposed to part B of the audit, which is obviously taken a little bit more seriously from the ATO perspective. He actually said that the ATO itself has admitted that we're not really interested in the part A stuff. Mm. So if it gets captured from that perspective and it's immaterial, they themselves aren't even that concerned about it. So perhaps we've landed at a spot where that's it. Let's just move on. Let's stop talking about it. Um, It is what it is, and and let's move forward. Now, I I should qualify that in saying that the OTO said they're not concerned about it per se from um, an isolated issue perspective. But they did say that if you get caught With any other compliance issues, then if there's an issue there, that will get picked up as well.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. So so in isolation, exactly,
0: exactly. So in isolation, they're not concerned about it. Obviously, if you have other compliance issues, that will probably go into the fold of how they treat it. But um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think it's it. Peter makes a good point and and maybe we should move on now. I don't know whether or not the industry is disciplined enough to stop talking about. It. I know we're talking about it now, but yeah. We're not actually talking about it in perpetuity if if no. that makes any sense at all. Um but I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not the industry is is actually disciplined enough to to stop talking about this and and move on because um maybe we've landed at the at the best possible solution as you, as you said it's not perfect but maybe it's the best possible solution and you know we should just accept it and and that's it
1: well the other thing i'm back to that materiality is <clears throat> if if a fee is charged let's say how, how- I mean, if if nothing's charged, then obviously that's a different scenario because nothing has been charged. But if a fee is charged, and then that's at a substantial discount to what would have been charged, but how do you determine what would have been charged? You know, that's that whole the gap that is subject to this two times. Um, if like I said, if it's zero, then you know you're, you're it's a bit of a, uh, a more difficult argument if you end up in that arena. But if you did charge a fee and it wasn't a dollar or 50, you know, $50 or whatever it might be, it was a few thousand dollars. You know, there, there are firms out there that uh, administration firms that are charging those sorts of, um, you know, those sorts of things. So what are you comparing it to now? You know, you would be comparing it to the firm who did it. What are the, that, what would that firm have charged if you were, um, you know, a, a, a standard client, but you have to demonstrate is that reasonable and all those sorts of things. So anyway, we, we've, we've, like I said, we've gone full circle and now we are at that materiality um, sort of realm and, and we and we just move on. I, I, I think we should just move on to be perfectly honest.
0: You raise a really good point there because I still remember when, when the non-arms length expenditure provisions dropped and they said that they'll potentially going to implement this. Dana Fleming was still the person that we were dealing with at the ATO. And she was asked a question. I thought it was a pretty good question. If I can put my accounting hat on, which I don't do very much these days anymore. Um, She was asked a question about that. How do we know what's indicative? And, And a comparison was actually made to the FPT rules. And I don't know whether or not this still exists, but certainly when I was an accountant, it did. So, the so whether or not you got charged FBT on car parking dependent upon how much a parking station within a five kilometre radius would charge for all day parking. And if it was in a certain band, then it it wasn't worth, I think it wasn't worth charging FBT for or the FBT oh, would okay. be negligible versus, obviously, if you got parking underneath your building. Um, in the CBD, where parking is really expensive, then of course it would be a substantial FBT charge. So um, I thought that was a great question in terms of well, how do we actually measure this? Like we need some parameters to be able to measure this. And I still, I thought her answer was really good. She goes, "Look, we're not going to go down the path of of." Assessing expenses around a, a location or a, or a geographical set of circumstances where I don't know H and R Block in in the suburbs might charge less than H and R Block in the city. She said that that's a that's massively too complicated. It's not a rabbit hole that, that we're looking to head down. And it's funny, even though as we both agree, we've probably come to the solution that. It's going to be landed on, but that aspect of it is still a little bit contentious.
1: And also, I think the the fees that are charged to funds. I know that there's there's certain um, admin firms out there that have their fixed um, fees that they charge, but a lot of accounting firms, their fees are based on the time it takes. So what you might you might charge not very much to a fund that's got. A couple of term deposits or whatever the investment strategy has been decided on and it's quite straightforward versus the fund that is worth a lot has like hundreds and hundreds of transactions and maybe a like a, a vast array of investments in it that's going to cost a lot more in time than to, to to process it and deal with any of the other compliance issues and making sure that that's all schmick to go to audit as opposed to the the smaller one so again it's all circumstantial, circumstantial at the time, what what that arm's length fee might be. So it's yeah, it's it's always that that sort of consideration coming through.
0: Now, one of the other and things, and again, we're the, not
1: helping it because we're talking about it continually. Yes,
0: <laughs> yes, we are talking about it. But as far as this podcast goes, this is a lot, this will be potentially the last time we talk about it. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, you raised another really good point, Gemma, and and. This has been raised by other people within presentations that I've been to recently. And that is this, it's not confusion, but I I suppose you could call it a misnomer, that the focus has been so heavily on this general expense stuff that people have almost thought that, oh, this amnesty or this not doing anything about it applies to the specific asset non-arms length expenditure provisions. Of course, it didn't. I mean, they, yeah. they've been valid for that whole time, and and obviously, potentially people have been getting into trouble because they've been under the, the misconception that oh, I don't have to worry about that. Like it's still being fought out. I, you know, that's 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 not an issue for me. Um, you know, has has the absolute focus on this actually created another problem in another area that? Um, Obviously, unintended consequence, but it's happened and it's happening. I mean, you, you've you've got direct anecdotal evidence by the sounds of it that it has caused a bit of an issue.
1: Well, it's I mean that's always sort of been the the concern, and that you know that they use my terminology again the can has been kicked down the road on asset specific expenses now things like tran doing the plumbing um consideration and back to your point of well how's the auditor going to know um you know sure there's that consideration there um you know if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it um so is that the right analogy? Anyway, we move on. <laughs> uh, but it's for me the biggest concern. Well, there's a couple. One is the acquisition of an asset. So, uh, and and was that at, at, on arm's length terms? So that uh, that approach and that's continued to be a, a consideration and an issue prior to 1 July 18, uh, and particularly when you sell it and there's a gain, uh, and also. Uh, subsequent to, to 1 July 18, it's been you know a lot more uh, robust around that. So the consideration there being, well, it doesn't apply to income earned prior to 1 July 18. However, if uh, it, income from then is still captured. So if you bought the asset prior to 1 July 18, so say you bought um, units in a unit trust, it's an unrelated but closely held one, uh, you know, the, invested in a property back then, and you know that that's all been fine, and then you reinvested each year the distribution, but that was always done at a dollar. Um, so that the acquisition of the initial units would be fine at a dollar because you haven't acquired the underlying asset. But then every subsequent year, if you acquired those units at a dollar each time, that's highly unlikely to be the market value of of the of the units in that unit trust um, each year. So. You've acquired them, you know, might not have even been at market value, um, sorry, uh, at a discount, because depending on what the underlying assets were and all that usual sort of stuff, what's the market value of that unit trust investment each time you reinvested? So, like, that's a real concern. Say that happened and had happened constantly over a period of time since acquisition, and then you sell it or you sell an asset. one of the underlying assets in that trust in the current financial year because you haven't acquired a lot of those units along the way at market value you know that is tainted not only that if you haven't acquired those over that period of time and uh, it's that proportion of units with the distribution each year is also caught because you haven't acquired them for market value so there's that I, I feel like is a is a Real concern, I have to say, um, from that perspective, and the changes that uh, were released recently, there was a comment made in there that it wouldn't apply to expenses incurred or not incurred prior to one July eighteen, but it is uh, the, there's no real clarification. For me, that is implied that it's about general expenses. It's not any of those specific expenses or acquisitions, because if you read the explanatory memorandum, it's all again about general expenses and not, um, not asset specific. So I've got a real concern on that um, from that perspective. There could be a whole raft of funds because the, the legislation and, well, the explanatory memorandum also just talks about the asset specific expenses provisions are, are unchanged. Um, so, you know that that has has been in place. The other, um, so that's with the acquisition of the asset. The other thing that we also encounter is, so I'll use my closely held um, trust as a as an example. Is say uh, it was doing a property development or the like, and one of the investors is managed the the project, and that's what they do for a crust. So their property developers. Um, with out there in the, the usual realm, and they didn't charge a, a, a market rate fee for for project managing that. All of a sudden, that income uh, in that year is then exposed. So it's you know it has that that carry on effect from that perspective with the asset specific expenses. And I I've got a, a much more of a substantial concern um, about that from that perspective.
0: Yeah, if you get tripped up by um, those rules too, there's there's no rectification, is there? Once once it's done, it's done, and and it's done in perpetuity, uh, and Absolutely. until you rid, until you get rid of the asset. Yep. So um, that
1: that whole property. So the uh, if you were the project manager and you didn't charge, yep. that would yep. just fall in that year. Uh, but if the if at acquisition you haven't acquired it for market value. Uh, Then that's not just the capital gain at the end. That's every year that you that income any income generated um, and distributed is you've got gnarly exposure there. So that's definitely more of a concern for me. I have to say.
0: Well, that's an extremely severe penalty. Mm. Um, It doesn't matter how you look at it; it is an extremely severe penalty, and it almost would encourage you. Well, I don't know um as a mitigation exercise, maybe to get rid of the asset sooner rather than later. Obviously, if it's a successful asset and it appreciates what mm. like we all would like our assets to, um the more it appreciates, the worse you're gonna be with uh, um with the capital gain when you when you eventually sell it. So if you get tripped up by us it, it's almost it's almost pushing you towards well if I if I have to mitigate this risk we better get rid of it as soon as possible
1: but that in itself can be a real challenge because let's say uh so how, how do you get rid of it you've got to sell it uh if you've got partners outside so you know <clears> it's a closely held trust how easy is it for you to perhaps dispose of your interest in that trust to the other parties or to another related entity those sorts of things because that, like, if you don't have the, if you're not eligible to say, maybe receive that out as a lump sum payment because you haven't satisfied a condition of release, then you've got to come up with the money external to Super to perhaps buy that out. If you can't sell it externally, what does the unit holders agreement say? It is if all Super funds are invested in that, everyone's got that same sort of risk profile that they need to have a look at. Uh, so then you know it can and i don't want to i don't like scaremongering but it's it certainly is an area that we're seeing more and more when you know we pick up um pick up some files and we're like ooh that's a concern uh well not only that that reinvestment hasn't occurred at market along the way. Uh, we've also seen situations where the expectation was that a unit trust was uh, not an in-house asset and it actually was. So it's just been ticking over for a number of years um, in breach of the in-house assets test. And that's not, you know, what we're talking about here. Uh, so the, that, that, un- those unit trust closely held unit trusts in self-managed funds is a real area of, um, you know, of compliance risk if it's not done properly and particularly on this. And the non-arms length side of things is particularly, um, you know, prohibitive if you get it wrong. Um, And and like you said, how do we resolve it? Do we, especially if the acquisition is the issue, if it was one year on that, you know, trans sort of expense or that property management side of things, then, you know, you can just carry on subsequent years and and be okay, but if yeah, if the original acquisition wasn't wasn't undertaken at market, then you've got that ongoing risk. But then practically, um, getting out of it is it can be a real challenge.
0: So it's funny because well, it's not really funny, but it it presents a a strange situation. If you're in that in you're in that predicament, you're almost thinking to yourself you're having to weigh up. I mean, if if the circumstances are in that closed unit trust that you're talking about, if you've got circumstances like that, you're almost having to weigh up which is the two mm. two lesser lesser of two evils. Two evils, yep. Um, basically, well, gosh, it's going to be so difficult to try and unwind this. How do I even go about it? How do I even start? Mm. Um, what sort of strategy can I put together to try and do that? Oh my God, it's so complicated. I don't even know whether or not I can do it versus well, I'm going to have to pay a, a massive amount of tax um, when the capital gain comes in. But is it less painful to actually do that than than to try and rectify it? Now, because, I don't know how you, you I don't pay know the how tax you anyway because yeah. you're going to pay
1: that tax you know, now yeah. where it might be less than later if you... If you keep it so, anyway, it's it's always like that predicament, and you know sometimes you can resolve it if in terms of perhaps moving the asset up to the super fund from the from the unit trust if if it's eligible from that. So the, the, you know there's plenty of things to to have a look at. It's unhelpfully it depends on the situation and the circumstances that the easiest and and most cost-effective way to, to resolve those issues. So, again, that's that's a challenge um, that we're certainly seeing. And, and that's just on the expense side of things. The other consideration is that's on the basis that the fund has a fixed entitlement to the um, income of the trust. So if they don't have a fixed entitlement, which is another thing, we're looking at a lot of historical trust deeds, and they've got the uh, the fact that there's discretionary um the trustee can exercise discretion uh, on on various uh, distributions. So all of a sudden we've got this issue with fixed entitlement. So we're automatically in before we've even considered the the other, um, you know, the expenses and if they've been incurred on an arm's length basis or not. So that like whole operation of the non-arm's length income provisions, uh, a lot of people have been alive to it for a number of years, but given this general expense being kicked down the road uh, substantially since since these changed rules came in, I think a lot of people have not necessarily given due consideration to all these other issues that, are, that have come through. So that, I, like I said, that is far more of a concern for me with the gnarly and um, gnarly with an E, gnarly with an I, both of those, uh, than at the general expense side of things.
0: So sort of extending that, that concept, I know that earlier we both said that we should stop talking about the non-arms length expenditure, general expenses side of things because we've landed in a situation which I don't think is going to improve and, and it's not going to go away. But should the discussion around Nally with an I and Nally with an E be on this now?
1: Yes, should absolutely. should the
0: industry be disciplined enough to be able to say, all right, well, let's pivot now. We're still not happy with some of the aspects of these rules as a whole. Let's see what can be done about this. Because obviously, as you said, um any discussion around this has just been put pushed to one side because um the concerns over particularly the general expense um provisions were that catastrophic that it's just dominated everything to do with that. And um yeah. Should we all start well, talking then- about this now and, and try and come up with a, with a better solution to what's going on now? Because I don't think, well, I don't think anybody who's fair-minded would think that this is a great situation. And I don't, I don't even, Maybe I'm a little bit naive. I don't even believe that it's necessarily what the ATO wants. Like I don't well, necessarily think um, these, is, these are the outcomes the ATO yeah. would would like to see. It's just a matter of, well, these bits and pieces are falling out the, the further we go along um the path. And of course, you can always you can always improve things. You can always have the discussion as to How can we make this better? How can we make it less severe? Or, um, or, 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 I don't think anybody's complaining about, you know, if you've got a compliance breach, you need to, in some way, potentially pay a penalty. As long as the penalty is commensurate with what you've done and if you're willing to rectify, you know, I didn't, I mean, what happens if... I didn't actually realize it. Okay. I'll I'll fix it. I don't want to be in compliance breach. Um, You know, in situations like that, surely some sort of leniency or, or um, reasonable approach would be better for everybody. And not just, and, and obviously I'm not talking about the bad actors out there who are Mm. trying to gain an advantage. Um, There's always going to be those around, but you can't, surely you can't beat everybody with as big a stick as you'd like to beat those people with just in general terms because I don't think that 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 does anybody any good at all.
1: Well, the the general expenses thing really came to the fore and was on the tip of everyone's Mm -hmm. tongue and really concerning because it wasn't just SMSFs that it impacted. It impacted every single superannuation member in the country. So that's the trillion-plus dollars in super that it could impact. So, you know, that's definitely why it was, um, you know, a concern and out there. So with this asset specific side of things, there's, I, I agree, I'm, I'm certainly of the view that there's, it wasn't um, intended to be, to potentially be that harsh in the way that that all went through. But at the same time, there's the, the consideration of, well, you know, it's an integrity measure in there to stop people from diverting um, assets into super and getting that that tax concessional treatment so we really need to be careful to make sure that we're not um you know that those people again you know the, the penalty if there is a penalty needs to be commensurate with what it was and a lot of this stuff is inadvertent so i'm talking there about the situation like i'll go back to my unit trust where you've got three say three owners of it Everyone's reinvested their distributions each year. So it's the dollar amount has been reinvested equally by everyone. So it's still the same proportions. It's just not at market value. So it's just the outcome would be the same if you did it at a dollar in terms of the proportion ownership, whereas if you did it at not a dollar, if that makes sense. So, you know, in that case, it's just inadvertent and the outcome if you'd done it properly, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't do things properly because they absolutely, you know, that's what the legislation is there for. But, you know, in those sorts of situations, you would think that there might be a, a concessional um, thing available. But I guess the other thing is because people haven't been alive to this, they've missed it and it's gone through to the keeper. Um, you know, to use a cricket analogy, or kicked into touch, if you prefer rugby, or whatever that looks like. Um, so they weren't Pitch the boys we were looking for. I've got to get my Star Wars reference in there. No. So you know that it's it hasn't been looked at by uh, because it, people weren't aware of it or or even thinking about it. So it's sort of carried on, hasn't been disclosed as non-arm's length income. So it might be that that. That, that history is, is is where it is. Um, you know, amendment periods apply back, um, you know, we've got the four-year amendment period if, you know, that that operates from that perspective as well. So it might be that the tax office approach to that sort of thing is a, going forward. But the consideration with that still remains that if I sell an asset this financial year and so maybe my, the income, the tainted income, because I didn't acquire it for market value back in 2005 um, or along the way, uh, the capital gain is still caught, um, even if they are sort of concessional or or allow that uh, or it's outside the amendment period, that's what happens. So it doesn't change that situation and, yeah, what that looks like and how that, that practical approach might be because I do see that... There's probably a lot of funds out there that are not aware that this is an issue and, uh, and they're trapped and caught by it and the ability to, you know, consider, oh, actually, we did issue an incorrect number of units, but that was back in 2008. So, you know, that that sort of thing. And even the when we moved over with the transitional rules for pre-99 unit trusts between um, 99 and 2009, you know, we're picking up a lot of those and seeing how that approach happened back then. And again, you know, that wasn't necessary. That wasn't done at market value at the time. Trying to rectify all of that, I mean, that's that's a real challenge in itself as well.
0: Yeah, I I think you raise a really good point, and I, I do want to qualify my comments around this. Is that you're absolutely right. It's an integrity measure, and and in no way. I think, are we saying that it should be softly, softly either?
1: Mm, absolutely. Um, I,
0: think, I, think I did not interpret
1: can't... that's what your comments were either, Darren. <laughs> no,
0: no, I think it, more than anything else, it, it actually highlights how difficult it is to get the balance right. Mm. Uh, I think that's basically what we're saying is that the balance has to be right where the penalty is not so severe that it's ridiculous, but then the penalty is not so soft that it doesn't discourage bad behaviour on on the part of whoever wants to try and get an advantage or an unfair advantage um, by using an SMSF. And, of course, that's not what anybody wants because, you know, we know how quickly people are um, to jump on any bad stories about this sector, and it's not what we want, and it's not what the system wants either. I don't think that's good for the system. So, obviously... um, advocating for some sort of right balance is really what we need and I think it needs to start with the discussion as as you say, Gemma, let's let's park the general expenses thing. let's concentrate on this because this is going to have um, pretty significant impact and it already is from from what you're saying but going down the track it it's it's going to be an even bigger problem for, for more people.
1: I know that at um, various conferences in the last few years, this has certainly been a topic that has been approached, you know, looking at the um, gnarly from that asset-specific perspective. But again, because that always played second fiddle to the general expense monster, um, you know, perhaps people again just dismissed it as kicking the can down the road. So it's, you know, that's something to have a look at. The other thing that... Uh, that may arise is uh, whether the tax office allows, and I'll call it like an amnesty, or um, I don't remember if 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 you remember Project Do It Disclose Offshore Income Today, it was a great acronym, um, and that was allowing people to basically bring if they taken money overseas and weren't disclosing it, it allowed them to bring it back to the country, they disclosed it, and then the tax office was just going to go over a two year period and not go back historically which if you had generally they'd have the opportunity to go back historically outside that four-year amendment period because of fraud and evasion and all that fun sort of stuff so anyway I digress a little bit whether there's an uh, that you know maybe there's an amnesty put in place to allow um, things to be brought up to code for want of a better phrase when the uh, practical compliance guideline came out in 2016 um, 2016 slash five which was to do with the limited recourse borrowing arrangements from related parties and although that benchmarking and that tax determination, I'm going to get this wrong, 2016, 16, I think it was testing my memory here. Uh, When those came out, it gave people the opportunity to basically rectify and get their arrangements, like I said, up to code. Um, And then provided they did that before a particular period of time, then, you know, and they continued to benchmark it then they wouldn't fall within the gnarly regime. So I don't know whether there's an opportunity to do that. It's very challenging to go back to 2005, if that's what my example is, and, um, and change how, what you paid for an investment. Uh, so, you know, those things can be challenging, but, you know, perhaps there's something that gets included in there. It might be an area that doesn't get picked up until the asset's ultimately sold, and then that ship might have sailed. So you're just still seeing what that looks like. Uh, but again, it is it is a challenge from, from that perspective to consider um, the approach and how might that might work. But is it something that we need to be... Uh, again people um are potentially unaware of 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 those implications and the the potential size of those uh because they've just well just reinvested a dollar you know it doesn't really matter it doesn't um you know it's a unit trust that the fund owns sure but it's it's separate to the super fund so it's not covered by those rules but yeah, again you know yeah. if you If you overlay all of that, it actually is covered, and you and you need to be really careful.
0: You actually raise a really good point um, about the amnesty, uh, especially, and and it's a really good example at the amnesty around the limited recourse borrowing arrangements and making sure that your affairs are um, working within the parameters of the safe harbor provisions that that the ATO provided and that sort of thing, because. um, and that's probably a very good example to use to argue that an amnesty would be good in this situation because at the um, the Tax Institute Superannuation National Conference, which we both went to in Melbourne mm. recently, um, Paul Delahunty was was talking about some of the some of the experiences that the ATO was was, was um, witnessing. Uh, and uh, one of the points that he did raise was that um, uh, adherence with those safe harbor rules has actually been really good. They don't they don't actually see much of a concern around related party loans or anything like that, which has been captured by that practical um, compliance guideline. So um, maybe that's actually a really really good uh, basis to say that well. It, it appears to have what you're telling us it appears to have worked really well in that instance. Why don't we try and apply it here because it might be a really good outcome
1: and I think you know that whole i think they use the term swim between the flags um and you know in this is where the tax office they've been really good on that the super front I think you know I remember back when the the uh I'll call it simpler super came out in two thousand and seven. <laughs> I'm showing my age here. Um, I remember when that came out, and there was just a raft of SMSF rulings, determinations, loads of ATO IDs that came out that were really, really helpful in terms of. And I think that was when Stuart Forsyth was like running things yeah. back then. He was like, "Right, we need to provide all of these sorts of things." Now I know the the way the ruling sort of system works is, uh, you know, it might not be binding on the commissioner for various bits and pieces, um, but the when, when it's a contentious area or something like this, which I'm sure a lot of people have undertaken um, inadvertently, like they just, they often they're not doing it, oh, we'll do it at a dollar because we want to, you know, divert income into the super fund. You know, people, sure, there's people that might be going down that path, but a lot of them are just trying to get the most out of their investments and what they're doing um, for their super and you know we love super because it's very tax effective. So um, but you know some of these things are, are, are inadvertent. so there's not that whole you know intention of, of going down that path. but you know with the tax officers' guide, guidelines and guidance on all these sorts of things is really helpful in the absence of getting a private ruling and then seeing what that interpretation might come out at. A lot of these, um, these, some of the. I mean, we're talking gnarly, so that's a tax concept. So you can get a private ruling, but if it was to do with CIS, you can't actually apply for a private binding ruling. So you have to get SMSF specific advice, which isn't binding. So, you know, all this. That when the my, my point, which I will get to, is that. You know the tax officer's guidance is a great way for the industry to to operate and you know swim between those flags, um, avoid any compliance issues. So you know if if it is an area where perhaps the tax officer can come out and show what those flags might look like, provide a, an amnesty period perhaps to resolve to come to stay go within those flags. You know that might be of benefit. Uh, you know it's it, one of the budget announcements a couple of years ago was uh, about resolving legacy pensions and to provide a two-year period of time for people to do that. So, again, you know, that's a, that's a, a government proposal as a, from a legislation perspective uh, but you know that a two-year amnesty that project do it I think was a two-year period of time to to get it done so whether there's that sort of arrangement and like I said you know with the uh, the LRBAs there was a period of time to get things and I'll use the term up to code so I mean I don't know um, and it's always hard with these sorts of things because it 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 might be an opportunity for people to, again, get things up to scratch. Um, And then it's the whole point is and it's an integrity measure, these rules. So the people that might have intentionally been doing the wrong thing, they, you know, get a bit of a, not a free pass but you know they the the integrity measure the application of that hasn't actually applied in the way it's been intended anyway it's it's one of those it's a it's a real challenge because you've got that situation where no doubt plenty of people fall in inadvertently Um, however uh, that the the rules are as they apply and they could be applied very strictly from that perspective if the um, tax office looked at it and it is self-assessment so You've just got to um, have a look at that, you know, do you get then slugged with the the tax if you haven't looked at it properly? Are there substantial penalties involved? All of that. Again, I don't want to scaremonger on that front, but it's, yeah, what does that look like? And again, everyone's going to have different circumstances and risk appetite from that perspective.
0: Now, Gemma, we're we're probably getting a little bit close to time, but I did want to raise one thing it's a slight tangent you mentioned it a little bit earlier and I promise listeners and viewers this will probably be the last time we talk about the general expense thing um I'm still amazed that uh during the whole discussion period and you alluded to before that it was a it was a nuclear issue I think at the time because Lo and behold, it looked like the industry funds were going to be caught by this because potentially what happens if I if I offshore my admin, then I'm not necessarily paying the market rate that's considered the market rate in Australia. Will that be caught? There was a definite scare, I know there was because Peter Burgess said that they were in talks with the APR-regulated funds about look, we've got to we've got to all work together and get this resolved. And lo and behold, They got a carve out. Now, I am just gobsmacked. This is this is another example of how this sector is being treated totally differently to everybody else. Um, You know, as per our last discussion, it was about the three million dollar soft cap, and of course, we know that um, the simplistic way a yearly revenue, or oh, earnings, sorry, earnings is the correct word, is being calculated was all to do with oh but their systems won't allow them to do that. So we can't we can't go down to the individual um, member level. Um there are continual examples of this and and some of these are a discussion for another day. Um I will give a bit of a highlight about that. Um this whole uh, retirement incomes discussion paper that came out right at the end of last year, I think is quite ridiculous, but we'll have a little bit more to say on that at another time, but just, it just continues, you know, they get a carve out. Oh, but you blokes aren't off the hook. So you deal with it too bad.
1: Well, so I don't disagree with that as a general sentiment I have to say. I think with this whole gnarly thing the the and, and, and I know that Peter Burgess brought it up in the um in the Senate committee meeting <clears throat> sort of acknowledging that the, the dealing with an arm's length because the trustees of a super fund are the members then there's more likelihood with particularly with acquisitions of assets that you aren't dealing with an arm's length party whereas the big funds are completely different but where they you know the general expense side of things gets caught is where from a, and um, I I don't want to again harp on about any of this where the the fund sets up an administrative arm, which is a separate company wholly owned by the by the big fund. And you know, that's where everyone gets employed. And then they just sort of they don't really charge a market rate back to the the fund for that because all the divot, the profit would go it would, you know, it's like a neutral impact uh, as an example. So I sort of understand why that general expense carve out applies um, or you know doesn't apply. That that general expense side of things doesn't apply it to an APRA fund. But where we've landed on it is that, that two times, immaterial, not catastrophic, just like, so why even bother with it? Being there almost so anyway that's that's where that so I, I don't disagree with you because the three million dollar cap is going to impact um you know ninety five percent of the people impacted are self managed super fund members uh, I, I I've just made up that ninety five percent but I think it's probably not inaccurate I, and, I think the official uh,
0: figure was eighty uh, percent
1: oh anyway I can say ninety five
0: might have been um, yeah.
1: There's a great quote, and I'm digressing here from The Simpsons where Homer Simpson says, um, did you know that um, you know, twenty-five or seventy-five percent of uh, of statistics are made up? 25% of people know that. <laughs> so anyway, that's where I've landed. I've used my Simpsons and Star Wars reference in today's podcast. So winning and footy, um, and footy as well. And, and footy cricket. and cricket. Yeah, yeah. It is cricket season at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's you know that that certainly is an area where that's come through. And you know the other thing when ASIC brought out uh, that the consideration of if you've got less than two hundred thousand in a um, in super, you shouldn't have a self managed super fund type thing. Again, paraphrasing those cost comparisons that a self managed fund costs way more than a public fund. You know all of those sorts of things. You you see um, where I mean there, there's obviously that not conflict, but, you know, the competitiveness between the big funds and the SMSFs because they, you know, we all operate under the same rules but just differently. So, so I I, un, I, understand, you know, where those different approaches. Um, so with the gnarly, back to that whole thing, I think that in this case, it is, isn't inappropriate for the big funds to be carved out of it, but if they're carved out of it on that general expenses, and like I said, where we've landed with the SMSFs on the two times, it, it, it just doesn't really make sense to have it there anymore just because of materiality um, considered.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, Gemma. I just, it disappoints me because that was probably one issue with the general expenses where if the whole sector gets behind it, it could actually be highlighted as to... Why the policy was was not so sound, Mm. but then when you give one section favourable treatment, and they say that, oh, well, buddy, you're on your own now. Mm -hmm. Okay, off the hook, you're on your own now, buddy. Which which is exactly how we know it works. Um, I just don't think that's helpful at all, and just another instance where I just, you know, think that that the policy decisions are questionable yeah can I say is <laughs> probably a nice way to put it yeah but uh, um look I've had my little rant on that um
1: we all like our little rants which, every every so often which I
0: do which I do feel strongly about and and to tell you the truth I do I do want to say this and I, and I know that there's a theme to some of the editorials I write and some of the things I say on things like this podcast. But at the end of the day I, I actually don't enjoy Criticising government policy the whole time. It's just that if it's bad, and we seem to have had a whole spate of bad policy for the SMSF sector in particular, um, it just needs to be called out. But, you know, whether or not that will make a difference, I don't know. Anyway. Well,
1: I think the, policy, the policy side of things is, a you know, a challenge. You can only lobby and... You know advocate and provide detail about you know the implications practical application and you know things like well back to the three million you know total super balance opening closing with adjustments you know is that is that fair and equitable going you know applying the objective of super you know so how that all flows through anyway it's going to be really interesting to see um where we land on on all of that and um Again, we digress a little bit. So, yeah, with the gnarly stuff, definitely um, the asset-specific expenses is is the concern of mine, I have, I have to say, um, going forward. So, you know, it might be an area where we do look at, at, um, at uh, well, it's, it's one of those things, do you really want to put your hand up and, and you know, bring it to the attention, um, you know, of the Commissioner if... If it hasn't been on their radar, um, you know I don't. I'm not a fan of head in the sand sort of things, uh, but you know it's it's something that we just all need to be a bit more alive to, and perhaps we can resolve it as as we go and and bring it to the clients' edu- um, attention and educate clients more on on how it works and 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 follow on from that. But it's just something that I think people need to be um, more aware of and how that operates.
0: But the way these things work. Um... I think raising your head is is inevitable, because somewhere along the line someone's going to pick up on this. Yeah. We know that it's going to happen, right? Once once all of the other discussions died down, someone's going to pick up on this. So,
1: and I think there already is compliance activity um, from the you know, at the tax office on it. So it's just, it's one of those areas that might increase. So we just need to be aware of it to try and, you know, head it off at the pass and mitigate any um, risks and um, adverse tax implications for our clients, I think. But
0: yep. meaningful discussion sooner rather than later, I think uh, right. would probably be a good approach.
1: Yep.
0: Anyway, I think we've had so much fun that we've run out of time again, Gemma.
1: <laughs> always. If that's
0: possible? Always. So, um look, I want to thank everybody for uh, joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed uh, hearing about this subject as much as Gemma and I obviously enjoyed talking about it. So uh, just wanted to say thank you again for um, being part of the podcast, Gemma, and uh, hope to do it all again pretty soon.
1: Sounds great. thanks very much, Darren, and look forward to chatting next time.:
0: Sounds good. Thanks, everybody.